core of everything we believe, the bodily resurrection, and particularly the bodily resurrection of Christ, which is so essential to the truth of Christianity that if you don't really believe it happened, you're not even a true Christian. And the hope of our bodily resurrection is likewise one of the cardinal principles of the faith. And that's the point Paul's making here. He starts this chapter by making the point about Christ's resurrection. And he's saying that this truth is one of the essential, non-negotiable principles of gospel truth. And the main part of the chapter, starting about verse 12, is a defense of the truth that we, you and Christian and me, and every authentic Christian, we will also be raised from the dead in bodily form. And then verse 54, when this corruption shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And so our bodily resurrection at the end of the age will be the ultimate consummation of everything Christ came to do. This is the consummation of his victory over death. And this morning I want to look at the opening five verses of this famous chapter. This is a vitally important text because it is a concise summary of the gospel in Paul's own words. His stated intention here is to declare the principles of gospel truth that are of first importance. Here is Paul's summary of the essential, indispensable, necessary, non-negotiable primary facts of the gospel. In other words, he's saying, These must be the foundational truths we have to believe in order to be authentic Christians. True believers, saved people, all believe these essential facts. Let me read the text for you, verses 1 through 5 in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas and then of the twelve. Now I stop there and I realize... Verse 5 stops actually mid-sentence, and Paul goes on to give an exhaustive list of people he knew about who were eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection. And don't miss the context here. The starting point of this chapter is the gospel. But he goes on to defend the resurrection, and we can stop there because that's enough to summarize what Paul is saying about the gospel. Notice, the question Paul undertakes to answer in this short passage is this. If we could reduce the gospel to its bare essence, if we could take the message of the gospel and boil it down to the essential points, what is it? If we were to summarize the gospel message in the briefest, simplest possible outline, what are the main points? That's what Paul is doing here. Verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached unto you. The gospel was, as, as we started out saying, reading from that passage in 1 Corinthians 2, the gospel was the singular theme of Paul's entire ministry to the Corinthians. And if we had time to survey the whole epistle, you would see that the gospel is a thread that runs 
through 1 Corinthians from start to finish. Paul says things, for example, like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6. The testimony about Christ was already confirmed among you. He's referring there to the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 17. Christ sent me to preach the gospel. Verse 18. The preaching of the cross is the power of God. And verses 23 through 24. We preach Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's all in the first chapter alone. And then you've got chapter 2, which we read from, where Paul says, I determined not to know anything among you except Christ and him crucified. Chapter 3, verse 11, other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, and so on. All through this epistle, Paul keeps referring the Corinthians back to the gospel as the foundational truth on which everything else they needed to know and believe, everything else hinges on the gospel. And the word gospel appears 12 times in the first nine chapters of this epistle alone. And the name of Christ more than 50 times, and most of those are references to gospel truth as well, plus several scattered references to the cross, which was Paul's shorthand way of referring to the gospel. And so the theme of the gospel permeates this epistle start to finish. And Paul's assumption has been, up to this point in 1 Corinthians 15, his assumption has been that the Corinthians were thoroughly familiar with the gospel message. He knew they were because he had preached it to them. And so when he introduces this section by saying, I declare unto you the gospel, what he's saying is this, here is the gospel one more time. And he's not reducing the gospel to three or four plot points in the form of bare narrative elements. You'd, you'd Here's some people today who would say that's what this means. He's boiling the gospel down, and it's just the narrative points. That's not what he's saying at all. He is summarizing the truth of the gospel under three or four heads, and he's making the significant events of the story into the headings that make a neat outline for all the essential truths of the gospel. So let's look closely at the text here. Verses 1 and 2 are where Paul introduces this what's a large section of the epistle. It's a major transition, actually, in the flow of the epistle. Up to this point, Paul has been correcting problems in the church of Corinth. He's still correcting problems, but up to this point, they've been behavioral problems, mostly. That was the church that uh, tolerated incest in their midst. They They had made a mockery of the Lord's table by their misbehavior there. They had abused the spiritual gifts Paul dealt with all of those problems in quick succession, and then he gets to this, and what you've got is a major transition. He's moving from that long section where he's basically confronting serious misbehavior, and he moves into this closing section of the, uh, of the epistle, and it's a discussion of the principle of resurrection and the absolute necessity of that truth when it comes to the gospel. So what he's doing here is he's actually correcting one final error in this chapter. And the whole chapter is devoted to the correction of this one error. But this one is a uniquely doctrinal error. Like I said, up to this point, he's mostly confronting bad behavior. Here he attacks a false doctrine. And if we could just read between the lines a bit, it's obvious what was going on here. Apparently, there were people in and around the church in Corinth who weren't convinced that the Christian message about resurrection was meant to be understood literally. 
And if you've ever studied Acts, you know this was a huge problem in Greek culture. Uh, it comes, comes to the forefront, especially in Acts 17, that the Athenian philosophers really stumbled over the, over the idea of bodily resurrection. And that was a major stumbling block in all of Greek culture. The philosophers of Athens were so absolutely shocked and appalled that someone of Paul's obvious learning and education could believe in the literal resurrection of the human body after death that that really ended Paul's message on Mars Hill. And Corinth was only 50 miles as the crow flies from Mars Hill in Athens. In fact, there was a hill outside Corinth that if you got on the top of it on a clear day, you could see all the way to Athens. So this was the same basic culture there. And the idea of resurrection was just as hard for the Corinthians to swallow as it was for the Athenians. And from what we can fathom here in 1 Corinthians 15, what we just read between the lines and and understand what Paul is answering here tells us a little bit about what was going on in that church. It seems people had somehow got into the Corinthian church who were saying, there is no resurrection of the dead, period. And in all likelihood... They were teaching that Christ rose spiritually, but not really bodily, and that believers would likewise rise only in a spiritual sense. That idea was much more compatible with the Greek notion of what the afterlife was like. They believed in life after death, but they considered the notion of bodily resurrection particularly foolish. Now, whether these doubts about the literal resurrection were spreading in Corinth because perhaps some deliberate false teachers had come in, or maybe they just had some well-meaning but sort of postmodern people in their presence who, who were trying to contextualize the message so that it wouldn't pose as much of a challenge to people in that culture. I don't know. Either way, it's clear that there was a denial of bodily resurrection and that this was such a corruption of the gospel and the truth of the gospel that Paul needed to correct it with force and with clarity, and that's exactly what he does in this chapter. And so bear in mind, first of all, that he is writing this chapter to stress that bodily resurrection is essential, not to categorize other doctrines as non-essential, but his focus here is on the resurrection. And he says, I want to review the basics of the gospel with you one more time. Verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. In other words, you are saved by God's grace through faith in this truth. And if you don't really believe all of this truth, he implies, you aren't really saved at all. That's what the phrase, you believed in vain, means. He's not threatening genuine believers that they might lose their salvation. He's cautioning people who seem to believe and pretended to believe that their wavering over such a crucial point of doctrine might be a sign that really they never actually believed to begin with. And so he's going to review the gospel with them. And here is how he sums it up. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received. Now, I'm going to stop there and point out two crucial things to notice just about that phrase, and I'll point them out in reverse order. First, he stresses the fact that he received the gospel. And if you go back to Galatians 1, you'll see what this claim is. He is 
expressly claiming that he received the gospel by direct revelation from the risen Christ in person. Paul didn't learn the gospel in an apostolic seminar. And it wasn't taught to him by any of the other apostles even, or any earthly person. He received it from Christ by divine revelation, beginning at that moment when Christ stopped him on the, on the road to uh, Damascus. And he, he was blinded but received his sight and also received an understanding of the gospel. He received it from Christ by revelation and he delivered it to the Corinthians intact. This is an explicit claim from Paul that what he had preached to them and what he was about to write to them was divinely revealed truth, not merely Paul's personal opinion. So that's the first thing to notice. Second, notice the phrase of first importance. That's what you have if you're reading the New American Standard, the English Standard Version, or the New International Version. The King James Version and the New King James Version both say, I delivered to you first of all, as if he's talking about first in order, uh, in chronological order. This does not mean first in chronological order. He's speaking of the core of gospel truths that are first in order of importance. These are the primary truths of the gospel. These are the most essential, fundamental, basic truths on which all other truth rests. And Paul enumerates the gospel in four points. And I want to use those four points as our outline this morning, make it simple for all of us. Here are four points of gospel truth that are foundational to every other truth of Christianity, and they are these, the burial, the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, and then the eyewitness evidence of the resurrection of Christ. And I'll name those for you so you can get them down as we go through them individually. But here are four historical events that all take us back to that one pivotal weekend that culminated in the bodily resurrection of Christ. And let's consider these one at a time as we work our way through this text this morning. First is the crucifixion of Christ. The crucifixion of Christ. The end of verse 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That is the first fundamental truth of of gospel principles. Of all the gospel truths, that is the first and starting point, the most important of all. Now, it would be a serious mistake to conclude from that 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 the real starting point of the gospel itself is Good Friday and the crucifixion. The real starting point of the gospel takes us all the way back to the Old Testament, which is what Paul is referring to when he says that Christ died according to the Scriptures. He's concerned here not merely with the historical facts of the gospel narrative, although as we're about to see, he is definitely concerned with the story as real history. But his focus here goes beyond the bare facts of history, and what he's concerned with is the meaning that is wrapped up in those facts. For Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Really, that phrase alone could furnish us with enough material for five sermons. There is an infinite wealth of doctrinal truth loaded into that simple statement. And Paul basically sweeps up into those few words the doctrine of the atonement, the meaning of Christ's death, the mechanics of our justification, and the authority and accuracy of Scripture. He's referring to all of Scripture there, when he says Christ died according to the Scriptures. 
He's saying that's the explanation even of the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. So all of those doctrines and much, much more are subsumed and implied in this simple statement the way he sums it up. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, the evangelical movement nowadays is full of people who insist that really the only thing that matters is that Christ died for our sins and not whether his death was a substitution for our punishment or whether it furnishes us with an example to follow or whether it's merely a graphic picture of the wickedness of sin. Those are all different interpretations of the atonement. And you'll find people who say, frankly, it doesn't matter which of those you believe. It doesn't matter whether you believe his righteousness is imputed to us or infused into us or given to us as a pattern to follow. But, they say, if you believe the simple story that Christ died for our sins and you can believe it in almost any sense you want, then you're in, you're a true Christian, and shame on anyone who ever questions you on doctrinal grounds. Let me say, that is patently false. And Paul's full statement here proves it. The point he is making is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. In other words, the meaning of the atonement is one of the first principles of the gospel, not merely the historical fact of it. And Scripture clearly says that Christ died for our sins by standing in our place and in our stead and taking the punishment, which was the full weight of God's wrath, which we deserved against our sins. Listen to the Old Testament. When Paul says, according to the Scriptures, what does he mean? Well, this is one of the texts he's referring to. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Okay, someone says, but... but that says we considered him smitten by God. It doesn't mean God was really the one who smote him. Read on. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And so on. Isaiah is clearly teaching that Christ died as our substitute and his death represented the punishment of God for our sins. What Christ bore on the cross was the penalty of sin, the full weight of God's wrath against sinners. That's how he died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That's exactly what Paul means. And if you don't believe that's the meaning of the cross, then you haven't embraced the first principle of the gospel. Paul puts it on that footing. That's exactly what he's saying and why he makes it so important. The cross is not just a moving narrative designed to elicit a feeling of sympathy for Christ in his sufferings. I don't care if you watched Mel Gibson's film about the crucifixion ten times and cried your eyes out every time. You haven't embraced the meaning of Christ's death until you believe Christ was suffering the horrors of the cross as the sacrificial lamb of God. It's the meaning of it that counts, not merely the fact of it. He was a substitute for sinners who actually deserved not only the pains 
of all the punishment of Roman crucifixion, but more importantly, all the full weight of God's eternal wrath against sin. And you still haven't got it if you haven't seen yourself as one of those sinners who deserved that judgment. When Paul says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, he means all of that. In Romans 3.25, when Paul says Christ's blood was a propitiation, he means it's an offering to satisfy the wrath and the righteousness of God, an offering made to God on our behalf for our sins. Now, let's be honest about it. That's a crude-sounding truth, isn't it? If you really think about it, it's not a comfortable idea. And if you are uncomfortable with the idea that God demanded a blood sacrifice in order to make his forgiveness possible, if you think that makes God sound severe and maybe even ruthless to require the life of an innocent victim, in this case his own son, before he would forgive guilty sinners who actually deserved the punishment Christ took, if you stumble at that truth, you haven't grasped the importance of God's righteousness. And does your mind resonate with those who want to tone that truth down? And because they say it sounds like cosmic child abuse, God punishing his own son in our place? If so, you haven't yet grasped the very heart of the gospel. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Leviticus 17.11, it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. God doesn't forgive apart from a perfect sacrifice. And that involves the shedding of the lifeblood of a perfect, flawless, sinless, substitutionary sacrifice. But in all the Old Testament sacrificial system, not one sacrifice was ever really good enough to do that. Hebrews 10, verse 4. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. And so Christ offered one perfect sacrifice for sins forever. All of Scripture teaches this truth of substitutionary sacrifice. Now, of course, ideas like blood atonement and propitiation do challenge the sensitivities of secular postmodern culture. Our world today recoils at these ideas. So there, are no, there is no shortage of people today, even many who call themselves Christians, who want to refine and redefine the gospel in order to eliminate hard truths like those. Still, that is the very idea Paul has in mind when he says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He's saying that's maybe a difficult truth, but that is the very first point of gospel truth. Here's another one. Number two, the burial of Christ. Verse 4, and that he was buried... Now, at first glance, you might be surprised to see Paul name the burial of Christ as one of the first, most essential principles of gospel truth. If you think about it, and in fact, I doubt if any of us here, most of us, many of us seasoned Christians, and I'm sure all of us, if not most of us, if not all of us, would affirm the truth of Christ's burial. But this is, let's be honest, not a point most of us would think necessary uh, it's certainly not one of the ones we would instantly list as one of the fundamental truths of Christianity, the burial of Christ. It's not something most of us even meditate very deeply on. 
So let's ask what Paul was talking about here, the burial of Christ. He lists that as one of four points he makes as the essential truths of the gospel. What is he saying? Is there some secret, mysterious, doctrinal significance in the burial of Christ that Paul is trying to bring out here? No. Remember, these points are Paul's shorthand, sort of four points from the gospel narrative that he's using to categorize all the basic truths of the gospel. These are categories that include bigger truths, and they imply many more truths than just the bare facts of these events themselves. So think about this. What does the fact that Christ was buried suggest to you? And it seems to me that the point Paul is underscoring here is the reality and the historicity of Christ's death. Jesus didn't merely appear to die. His death was not a charade that was designed to fool his enemies. It wasn't a myth devised to teach some abstract idea. It was real. He was truly and literally dead, and that is a fact of history, one of the fundamental gospel facts. In fact, think back to our first point where Paul says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And the lesson there again is that the authentic gospel includes the true biblical meaning of Christ's death. That stresses the importance of sound doctrine. Now, here, when Paul says Christ was buried, he's saying that the true gospel affirms the historical facts of Christ's death and burial. If you don't believe the literal, historical, biblical account of what occurred on that original weekend when Christ rose from the dead, if you don't believe all of that was historically factual, Paul says you really haven't believed the gospel. Now, this is a vital truth to stress today because we live in an era where there are a lot of self-styled religious experts, including men you see on TV, usually on the secular news channels. They haul these guys out to interview them as experts, men who obviously don't believe the truth of Scripture, including men who have attained the level of bishop in a supposedly Protestant body like the Anglican Church, who will say they don't believe it really matters much whether the facts of Jesus' resurrection and death are true. Paul says here it does matter. He was buried. And Scripture says he was buried under the watchful eye of a Roman military guard who, under Pilate's personal orders, in the words of Matthew 27:66, went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a round-the-clock guard on the sepulcher. Roman soldiers, men from units who specialized in carrying out crucifixions, they knew very well how to tell whether someone was really dead. And the gospel accounts take pains to make it clear that Christ was well and truly dead and that he was buried and that this is a real-life event in time and history, not merely a legend that can be bent and shaped to accommodate individual opinions and contextualized to suit the beliefs of secularized cultures like Corinth and like our culture today, where people think they are too sophisticated to take the idea of bodily resurrection seriously, but they still want to have a gospel that's suited for their own personal style of skepticism. Paul says no. The true gospel includes the historical facts that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that his death was real and literal, and the proof is that he was buried. Buried, as the 
scriptures describe spending three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, according to Matthew 12:40. And incidentally, because I know someone will ask, that expression, three days and three nights, was a common expression in those days. It was a kind of figurative expression that signified more than one 24-hour period, but less than a week. It wasn't supposed to be a precise calculation of time. This was the reckoning in vogue at the time, so the marking of time wasn't strict and formal. And so if you take the idiom in its original sense, that's a historical fact as well. Christ's burial fulfilled the sign of the prophet Jonah, which Christ himself foretold. In Matthew 12:39, in Matthew 16, verse 4, in Luke 11:29 and 30, Christ repeatedly said that he would spend three days and three nights in the earth and then rise from the dead. His burial over that long, dark weekend when they took him down from the cross until he rose from the dead at the dawn of the first day of the week is one of the primary points of gospel truth, Paul says, because it proves so much. It establishes Christ as a truthful prophet, because he said this would happen. It proves that he was well and truly dead, because he was buried under the watchful eye of those soldiers who knew what death looked like. They guarded his tomb. And the burial of Christ also underscores the literal historicity of the biblical account. And so those are the first two essential points of the gospel narrative, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried. The crucifixion of Christ and its real meaning, plus the burial of Christ. Here's point number three. This is the very heart of the lesson Paul wants to convey. Number three, the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ. He says, verse four, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, this is the pivotal point of all human history. This is the single greatest miracle anyone ever witnessed, the most important milestone in all of God's redemptive plan. In fact, this is the supreme sign and wonder in the history of the universe, overshadowing even the original creation in its far-reaching significance. The resurrection of Christ. It is the exclamation point that punctuates the gospel narrative. Christ Arose. And I think it's amazing that although he himself had foretold his resurrection on more than one occasion, his disciples were caught completely unprepared for it. It took them totally by surprise. Some of them doubted it until they saw it with their own eyes. But the evidence was undeniable, and every one of them, all his 12 closest inner circle, 11 of them after Judas committed suicide, all of them except John, died, paid for their belief that he had risen from the dead with their lives. They were put to death rather than deny that truth. And even John, who died of old age, died affirming the literal truth of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, even though it cost John everything he had, everything he counted dear, his freedom. He gave it all up rather than renounce the truth of what he had seen with his own eyes and what his hands had handled. And we don't have a lot of time today to review the biblical accounts of the resurrection. But take note of that phrase at the end of verse 4. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. There's that same phrase again, according to the scriptures. 
Now, this poses a bit of a problem because it's pretty easy for us really to think of Old Testament passages that speak of the death of Christ. I already read from Isaiah 53 where the death of Christ is the main theme of that whole chapter. There's also Psalm 22, which is even in some ways more amazing because it is filled with specific historical details about the crucifixion, all of them prophesied centuries before Christ died, Psalm 22. But what does Paul mean here when he says Christ rose again the third day according to the Scriptures? Are there Old Testament texts that predicted the resurrection? Well, there are a few, very few, but they're there. They are subtle, and they are easier to understand from this side of the resurrection than they were for people reading them before that first Easter Sunday. But the Old Testament did contain prophecies about the resurrection. Acts 2.27 tells us that Psalm 16.10 was speaking of the resurrection when it says, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one, thy anointed one, the Christ, to see corruption. And Isaiah 53 even has a hint of resurrection in it. Verse 10, after that great prophecy unfolds the meaning of Christ's atoning death, it says this, He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And there's the clear implication of resurrection in that, because it first describes his death, and then says the Lord will prolong his days, and and, uh, the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. However, I think in this case, this phrase, according to the Scriptures, what Paul is referring to here in 1 Corinthians, most likely is a reference to the Gospel accounts themselves, especially the Gospels of Mark and Matthew, which were almost certainly already in circulation and apparently well known to Paul when he wrote this epistle. If you compare his, his account of the Lord's words during the Last Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 24 and 25, with the accounts of Matthew and Mark of what happened at the Last Supper, you'll discover that they're verbatim identical. And even though Paul is emphatic in that context, saying that he received his knowledge of those events by divine revelation, again, from the risen Christ personally. That's how Paul found out about this truth. I think it's significant that he says he had told the Corinthians this before, from the beginning of his ministry, and here he repeats the wording exactly as it appears in the Gospel accounts. The Corinthians could then compare the records of Matthew and Mark with the account they had received from Paul, and by that verify that what Paul had told them was true. And so I think there's some evidence to suggest that the earliest Gospels were already available to the Corinthians and known to them. And so when Paul says Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, he may very well have had in mind Jesus' own words in the Gospels when Christ told the disciples he would rise from the dead, such as, Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23, where Jesus said this to his disciples, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Or Matthew 6, 21. Rather, Matthew 16, 21. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Or Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19. See, he says, we are going up to Jerusalem, 
And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Again, Jesus repeatedly had foretold these things. So the point is, first of all, that Jesus' death, or Jesus' resurrection, rather, was indeed prophesied by Scripture. But please get this. The most important sense, the more important sense of those words in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, this is an exact parallel to the same expression in verse 3. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And in other words, the main point here is not merely that this was prophesied, but that the true meaning of it is defined and determined by Scripture, not by our subjective interpretations of it. Paul is saying the same thing he said about the crucifixion. It's the meaning of it that's important. And the meaning is defined by Scripture, not by how we feel about it, not by what it means to us, but what it means to God who gave us his word and prophesied it and brought it to fruition. And what is the actual meaning of Christ's death or Christ's resurrection according to the scriptures? Paul himself answers that in 1 Corinthians or rather Romans chapter 1 verse 4 where he says Christ was declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection vindicated Christ who had died as a common thief hung between two actual thieves alongside sinners and on their behalf. And as he died, he looked for all the world like the worst sinner that had ever lived. And God himself treated him that way. That was the outpouring of wrath that he took. But when God raised him from the dead, it vindicated Christ. First Peter 1.21, God raised him from the dead and thereby gave him glory. Ephesians 1, verses 20 and 21, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So it eternally vindicated him. Romans 6, 9, Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So here is the bottom line meaning of Christ's resurrection. Here is what it means when it says Christ rose from the dead according to the Scriptures. This is resurrection according to the Scriptures. When God raised him up, that vindicated him. It demonstrated his victory over death. It demonstrated his power, his holiness, his divinity, and it gives us an unshakable assurance of our own justification. Now, that barely scratches the surface of what Paul means when he says he was raised the third day according to the Scriptures, but it gives you the flavor of that truth. So here's the the gospel so far. The crucifixion of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Now, quickly, in closing, here's the fourth essential truth of the gospel narrative. It's the eyewitness testimony about the resurrection of Christ. The eyewitness testimony to the resurrection. Now, there's an important parallelism here. Notice the first and the third points stress the true meaning of the gospel narrative. And they they underscore that with this phrase, according to the scriptures. The second and the fourth points stress 
the literal historicity of the gospel narrative alongside its true meaning. Christ didn't merely rise from the dead in some invisible, intangible, spiritual, non-corporeal, or mythical sense. But he arose bodily from the dead so that his glorified body could be seen and touched and handled. And the proof is in verses 5 through 8 that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, and so on. And Paul actually, in this short text here, cites literally hundreds of eyewitnesses who could testify to the literal truth of the bodily resurrection of Christ. And that, Paul says, is another one of the essential first principles of gospel truth. Christ's resurrection. Not merely a symbolic or allegorical idea, but the actual, historical, literal, bodily resurrection of Christ. And Paul spends the remainder of this chapter outlining the reasons why that truth is real and actual and absolutely crucial to the authentic gospel message. And again, he's saying, if you don't believe it, if you don't believe it's real and historical, just as certain and true as as I'm standing here, then Paul is saying, you've not really come to true faith yet. That's what he's teaching. If you don't believe in the, that, that the truth of the resurrection is literal and historic, if it's not the basis for your hope in Christ, if it's not the basis for your expectation of eternal life and your own anticipation of a literal bodily resurrection, then you haven't yet truly believed the gospel. And so I ask you, visitors and members alike, to examine your hearts and honestly face the question Paul sets forth by implication for us here. It's the question of whether you have genuinely embraced the gospel as Paul presents it here, the historicity of it, the truth of it. It starts with the death of Christ as an atonement for our sins, a historical event that was as real as any event in history, punctuated by his burial under the watchful eyes of Roman soldiers who, again, knew death when they saw it. It includes the truth of substitutionary atonement, which satisfied the wrath and the righteousness of God. And that, in turn, implies a recognition of our own guilt and our own utter unworthiness. And then it culminates in the amazing resurrection of Christ from the dead as the first fruits of all who believe and are justified and will one day also rise bodily to spend eternity in his presence. That is the gospel. If you truly believe that, you are saved. And the fruit of salvation should be evident in your life. And if you've never embraced the gospel, as Paul outlines it here, I urge you to turn to Christ today and be saved.